With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to today's Saja webcast. Your chance to interact with fascinating speakers from across the country and around the world. Please stay tuned for our next session. Hi everyone, welcome to another webcast from Saja, the South Asian Journalist Association. My name is Sri Srinivasan, and I'm co-founder of Saja and Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We're doing our webcast today from the Met, where I'm calling in, and our guest is calling in all the way from Singapore. Today we're going to be talking with journalist Nisid Hajari, at Nisid Hajari on Twitter, at N-I-S-I-D-H-A-J-A-R-I on Twitter, who is the author of Midnight Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition, the most important book about the partition of India and Pakistan. Hajari is a longtime Saja member and a former editor of Newsweek, and he's joining us on uh, the end of his tour that he's been doing in the U.S. and India and elsewhere about this book. We're talking in August, which is the anniversary month of the creation of Pakistan and the, independ- and the independence of India from Britain. Uh, so let me read you a little bit from the book's Amazon description, but let me also say hi to Nisid. Hi, Nisid. Hi, Shri. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, for ha- uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, let me just read a little bit here that gives you a sense of the book. Says a few bloody months in South Asia during the summer of 1947 explained the world that troubles us today. Nobody expected the liberation of India and the birth of Pakistan to be so bloody. It was supposed to be an answer to the dreams of Muslims and Hindus who had been ruled by the Brits for centuries. But in August 1946, exactly a year before independence, Calcutta erupted in street gang fighting, a cycle of riots targeting Hindus, Muslims, then Sikhs, Spiraled out, spiraled out of control. As the summer of 1947 approached, all three groups were heavily armed and on edge, and the British rushed to leave. Hell let loose. Trains carried Muslims west and Hindus east to their slaughter. Some of the most brutal and widespread ethnic cleansing in modern history erupted on both sides of the new border, searing a divide, searing a divide between India and Pakistan that remained the root cause of many evils. From jihadi terrorism to nuclear proliferation, the searing tale told in Midnight Furies explains all too many of the headlines we read today. And here are just some of the uh, great reviews that this has gotten, including an Amazon Best Book of the Year so far in the New York Times, a fast-moving and highly readable account of the violence that accompanied partition. In its finest moments, Midnight Furies is a story of what happens when a composite society comes apart. And our friend Fareed Zakaria from CNN writes, Hajari explores the roots of this tension in a beautifully written, deeply intelligent book about that crucial moment when Britain once again drew bad borders with calamitous consequences. And maybe that's a good moment to, uh, and a good place to start this conversation it would be fair to say that Farid was talking about the Middle East when he said they once again drew bad borders. And your book makes the case that we can understand a lot about what's happening in the world today from those bad borders that were drawn in India and in Pakistan. 
Yes, I think that's exactly right. The, um, you know, this is a, a conflict, a tragedy that uh, a lot of Americans in particular don't know that much about and don't understand how it affects their own history. Um, but if you look at uh, what the greatest security threats are um, in the world, you know, ISIS obviously gets a lot of attention. But if you think about where the likeliest place uh, of a nuclear war breaking out or of a nuclear weapon possibly falling into the hands of a terrorist group, uh, it's in South Asia. And and the reason that is, is because of the tensions that are there, because of this sort of Cold War between India and Pakistan that has lasted nearly 70 years, um, because of this, this fear, the strategic anxiety that Pakistan has about India as its potential existential threat. And that fear, the roots of that fear, begin uh, with the partition. They don't, they don't uh, end there. Obviously, you know, many things happen in the ensuing decades to to deepen that uh, that fear. Um, but the basic posture was set, uh, you know, within weeks of these countries becoming independent. And when we look at how much people pay attention to the Middle East and don't pay attention to South Asia. I think that uh, understanding the story of partition is so important, uh, and there has, you know, the the book that you've written is so important. And at the same time, even though people need to understand partition, I don't think there have been that many recent books on the topic. There's been obviously books like Raj uh, Raj Mohan's uh, book um, about uh, about India after partition, or uh, sorry, Ramachandra Guha's book India after partition. But um, uh, a lot of people pick up the story after partition, but you really set the stage very well. Yeah, I look, um, the book concentrates on a very tight period, um, just August of 1946 to September of 1948. Um, this is, you know, a year before and a year after independence. And most most books, you know, when you talk about partition books, they're really books about the Indian freedom movement. And partition is sort of, you know, the last couple chapters uh, of this, you know, long um, and generally positive, optimistic story. Um, or, as you say, there are books about modern India um, after 1947. Um, the question I had was was not exactly, you know, why uh, it came to be that this united India was was split by the British, um, but why the two countries that emerged from that partition would end up being such inveterate enemies. You know, is you know, a year before independence it was still possible to imagine that there would be a, a compromise whereby the subcontinent would remain united. Um, yet a year after independence, you had a situation where uh, the two countries were fixed into a posture of hostility towards each other uh, that they haven't been able to break out of. Um, and so the question that, that motivated me was, you know, what is it that happened in these two years? Uh, what were the decisions that were made on, on either side? What were the sort of animosities and anxieties and suspicions um, that the leaders held towards one another that created this posture of hostility? Um, you know, and, and if you look at it that way, um, it's sort of remarkable how much took place in just the span of a, a, a few short months and, and how... Uh, you know, you can sort of see almost decision by decision uh, that the, the two countries growing further and further apart rather than, say, coming together to, to deal with this tragedy, which was something that, that you know, affected both of them and, and threatened the stability of both new governments um, and, you know, could possibly have been an area of cooperation rather than, rather than conflict. Let's talk a little bit about the history of partitions uh, in other places. Where have we seen this in history that could have given us hope that things could have gone a different way? Hmm, that's a good question, because the other partitions that took place uh, around that time, you know, Israel, Palestine, um, uh, the, the Koreas, um, Iraq, you know, have not turned out well at all. Um, you know, this wasn't a partition, but, but Northern Ireland is the is the example that, that most people bring up of a sectarian divide that you know took a very very long time, obviously, but eventually it was um, you know found a way to to heal. Uh, so it's it would not have been an easy thing, that's for sure. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, that a different leader uh, on either side would have necessarily made 
all the difference. Um, you know, there were a lot of passions at, at work and, and a lot of um, uh, animosities had been built up over, over decades under the British. You know, the, these communities, Muslims and Hindus, particularly in northern India, um, had uh, had been growing apart for, for quite a while. Um, but it is also, it is remarkable to see how up until, you know, the very last minute, um, you know, there there wasn't, the, you know, there may have been tensions between the communities, uh, but they weren't organized. Um, they weren't, uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, these communities um, at the moment of partition didn't suddenly uh, wake up and pick up weapons and turn on their neighbors. Um, you know, what happened was that there were organized killing squads uh, from, from each community that would uh, uh, whip up mobs. Uh, that would go around and either kill or drive out minorities. Uh, I think without that degree of organization, the the level of violence would have been much less, and I think would have been much more easily controllable. Um, and people, even if they had suspicions about one another, you know, could have coexisted in a way that they had for for generations up until that point. And since your book focuses on that tight period, why don't you set the scene for us? What was happening in August? Uh, of, of 1946, and where, especially for a lot of our listeners who uh, aren't very familiar with that with that time period, uh, may may have seen the movie Gandhi, for example, and know a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. But to talk us through what the scene was at the time and uh, the leaders that are worth paying attention to. Sure. Um, so in August 46, uh, you'd basically, uh, you know, World War II had been over for about a year at that point. Um, and th- at the end of the war, uh, you know, the British had decided that they had made very clear that they were going to, to leave India. Uh, we're going to grant India independence. And the only question was whether they would grant it to a united India or uh, whether, whether they would grant the demand for an independent uh, homeland for Muslims uh, in the subcontinent, which is which is Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, this demand was being driven by the leader of the Muslim League, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, um, and uh, in his case, it really was you know almost single-handedly he was he was by far the dominant figure in his in his movement. Um, on the other side, you had more familiar characters: uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru. Um, Sardar Patel. These were the leaders of the Congress Party uh, who who were uh, fighting to preserve India uh, as a as a united whole. And in the spring of 1946, um, the the British had just finished holding elections throughout India in an attempt to sort of judge democratically how much support each side had. And uh, the Muslim League under Jinnah had had won. Um, the Muslim vote in, in many provinces and, and shown, uh, you know, in that way that there was support for the, for the demand for Pakistan. Um, but the British had managed to cobble together a sort of uh, compromise, a very unwieldy compromise, whereby the, India would remain united. There would be a central government that would have a few powers dealing with defense and foreign affairs and things like the currency, uh, but that the pr- individual provinces would, would really uh, have most of the powers, and then in the northeast and northwest, um, the parts of India that eventually became Pakistan, uh, those provinces could, if they wanted, uh, join together and form sort of sub-regional groups that would, you know, sort of a Pakistan within India. Um, and both sides agreed to this, but then at a press conference uh, that summer, Nehru. Uh, when asked about it, um, he was feeling pressure from his own party, uh, said something offhand about how, you know, this was just a, an agreement they were signing now, but once the British were gone, they would uh, they would do whatever they wanted, uh, that it wasn't binding. And this um, both embarrassed Jinnah uh, and also, you know, fundamentally destroyed any trust he might have had in the Congress leaders and, and their you know, willingness to commit to uh, giving Muslims uh, a certain degree of political rights within within India. So he called. Uh, he he also withdrew his support for this plan and said, you know, that up until this point they had they had tried to fight for their cause within negotiating rooms, um, but that now they were going to take the, the fight to the streets. And he called a what he called a direction 
Correct Action Day, uh, that whereby Muslims all around the country were supposed to gather and listen to speeches and and you know sort of uh, issue the call for Pakistan and, and demonstrate their support um, by by the numbers that they could call out into the streets. And all over India, this this took place peacefully, but in Calcutta. Uh, you know, this huge city, former capital of the Raj, uh, the the Muslim leader who is the premier of, of Bengal province, which Calcutta is in, um, is suspected of having uh, encouraged various criminal elements to do a bit of looting and rioting. Um, and this quickly got out of control and led to about four days of riots in which something like 15,000 people are, are uh, thought to have died. Um, and it was the most terrible riot, Hindu-Muslim riot, that had taken place under the British in India, and it sort of set off a chain reaction. It was at that point that you know riots started to spread to other provinces. The relations between the two communities um, became worse and worse. Uh, that the leaders on both sides, Jinnah and Nehru, who already didn't like each other, uh, you know, now really grew especially vitriolic towards one another. Um, and you start down this this slope towards what would happen a year later. Uh, which was the partition, and then these these riots that that spread out over weeks and months, in which anywhere from two hundred thousand to a million people were were killed. But it begins in August of forty six. As you were trying to get your uh, get your hands around this enormous story and picking this this uh, this particular time period, how much did you uh, think that you would? be able to uh, keep this in, within this, this smaller frame rather than kind of having to expand as editors and others wanted to put more things in? Oh, you know, it's interesting. I had to I had the opposite problem. I actually had started out with a broader period, a sort of 10-year period, um, because the narrative I was looking at, I was very curious about the relationship between Jinnah and Nehru, um, because they had known each other for 30 years. Jinnah was older and had, uh, at the beginning of his career, been sort of political allies with Nehru's father. So they were family friends. Um, and this was true among most of the Indian politicians. That, you know, this was uh, a very small elite in the country. They all knew each other. They sometimes intermarried, but they were certainly you know, social and family friends. Um, but at a certain point in 1937, uh, after elections that um, – where Jinnah was leading the league and Nehru was leading Congress, uh, their relationship turned very hostile. Um, and the way they described each other both publicly and, and, and privately uh, became very nasty and very personal. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was looking at why that, what changed then and then sort of how that played out over the next 10 years um, to lead to lead to partition, um, which was an interesting story, but it, it became too unwieldy um, and would have been a much, much longer book. Um, and so I tried to telescope that a bit in the, uh, in the first chapters of the, um, of the book and really concentrate on the, on this, you know, key period. Um, because as I said, you know, no matter how bad the relationship was and how tense relations between Hindus and Muslims had grown between 1937 and 1946, the, the fact is that, there was this compromise, um, you know, it, it was unwieldy, but it was accepted. And um, no one knows how long it would have lasted or what other pressures it might have created. Uh, but at least, you know, if it had held for a couple of years, you uh, would hopefully not have had the, the, you know, really terrible riots that you did in August of 47. You know, it might have given all sides a bit of a cooling off period, um, in which to, you know, allow the passions that they, that the politicians had whipped up uh, to die down, um, and you know, if if that had taken the place, of the, it had taken place, I think the world would have been would have been better off. And of course, when you read this kind of history, you always think of all the what ifs and how the world might be different today. Uh, I'd love to have you read a little bit from the book to give our listeners a sense of. Of the, of the pros, but before that, why don't we tell people a little bit about your own background and your and what you knew about partition before you got into this? And you, of course, are not a um, a scholar of the, this region, but you were foreign editor of Newsweek and then editor of Newsweek, and you were in that very important period after 9/11, helping explain 
the world, especially the Middle East and South Asia to some extent, to America. Uh, and uh, so explain, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you knew about this part of the world, and then uh, we'll have you read a little bit from the book. Sure. Um, so no, exactly as you're right. My my background is as a journalist, not a not a professional historian, you know, for whom I have immense respect. Um, and you know what I'd known about this period, you know, obviously I'd studied it before in university and so on. Um, uh, but uh, I you know I had come at it the way most people had, um, which was uh, as the culmination of this freedom struggle, as the moment when, um, you know, colonial people uh, overthrew uh, a European empire, you know, for the first time peacefully, setting off a, you know, chain reaction of decolonizations across the, the world. And, and, you know, this moment is very important, um, you know, f- for, for that. Uh, but then after 9-11, I was working with Fareed uh, at Newsweek International, um, leading our coverage of the war in, in Afghanistan. And it became very clear um, to us uh, very early on that the Pakistanis were helping to rebuild the Taliban by giving them safe havens and, and you know, some degree of support from some elements in the security establishment. Um, and I kept being asked this question um, by Americans and by readers, uh, you know, why is it that Pakistan takes billions of dollars in aid from the United States uh, and still supports, you know, these these terrorist groups? And, you know, I would explain that this has to do with the fact that they see India as their real enemy and are trying to maintain a degree of influence in, in Afghanistan. Um, and it just it uh, seemed to me that there was the story had taken on a new relevance outside the subcontinent, outside of India. This is no longer just about um, uh, the freedom movement, about about the beginning of one country or the end of an empire. It was really about the beginning of a rivalry uh, that now affected everybody in the world, um, and and you know was central to uh, you know American concerns about terrorism um, and about this you know the war in Afghanistan. And so it it. Uh, uh, I thought I could try and bring some of my journalistic um, uh, skills or, or, or background uh, to explaining the story to a, to a different audience that, that wouldn't have necessarily read the various histories about it that have been produced over the last several decades. Um, what are some things so, that surprised you, Nathan? What are some things that surprised you as you read it? Like, what are things you had heard, or things that you know that's like kind of people think they know but weren't true or what thought you thought you knew but weren't true. Yeah, you know, there's there are two big ones. You know, one, um, I, I should have mentioned, because uh, I get this question a lot about my, my background. I, I grew up in the U.S. My, my f- parents are from India, from... Um, from Bombay uh, and moved to the U.S. in the in the 60s. Um, so I've you know I've only lived there for a few months while I was researching the book. But I, other than that, I, I grew up in the in the U.S. Um, but you know most accounts that you read generally come from either the British or or the Indian side. Um, and in both, the Congress leaders Nehru and Gandhi uh, come off fairly well. Um, you know Gandhi is usually treated as a as a saint. Um, and you know it is true that their message, their philosophical message that they wanted to maintain in India, where where all communities could live together in peace, um, is an attractive one. Uh, but one thing that surprised me was the degree to which those leaders um, turned out to be bad politicians. That they 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 were great on the principles that they were upholding, but they weren't very good at coming to sort of pragmatic compromises um, with the Muslim League and with Jinnah. And Jinnah was, you know, a difficult character. Even his friends um, said he was extremely chilly. One of them said that that you needed a fur coat to be friends with him. Um, And he didn't leave behind these kind of extensive writings and letters and diaries that that Gandhi and Nehru did. So uh, he's hard to get to know as a historical figure. Um, but you know he was argu- he was a lawyer he was arguing a case and I think he would have settled uh, at various points along the, uh, in the process um, and what surprised me was the the degree to which I, I would you know would would agree that the Congress leaders um, were as much to blame as he was for not reaching those compromises um, that that 
you know, it was in their power as the larger, uh, more powerful uh, party uh, to to avert this tragedy, um, and you know, and, and they failed to do so. Um, and there were plenty of critics at the time uh, of them, but but over the years, a sort of halo has grown up around them, and, and you don't hear that criticism anymore. So that surprised me. And then the second thing was, um, I think I also had had the impression uh, that somehow the violence was spontaneous and, and undirected and and uh, that it really didn't involve peasants just, you know, killing one another with, with uh, you know, rough implements that they had at, at hand. Um, and because that was also how riots had, had taken place in the past in, in the subcontinent. But this is very different. This was ethnic cleansing led by organized Groups um, and and it wasn't that Nehru or Jinnah themselves were were, organ, were ordering this to take place, but um, you know politicians lower down the food chain, local leaders um, had built up these militias in the summer before uh, independence um, for self defense. They said, um, but you know at the same time they were going off and 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 setting you know, uh, homes and businesses on fire from the other community or killing a few people here and there. Um, you know, they weren't contributing to peace. And then when, when the initial riots broke out, they were sort of the accelerant uh, poured on the flames. Um, so it, it surprised me the degree to which the violence was organized and how that took a situation that, that might have been controlled and made it virtually un, uncontrollable. Um, that was... Uh, Something that I don't think is that well explored because it's very rare. You can't find, you know, death squad leaders who sort of openly come out and say, X, you know, this is what I was doing. You, you sort of have to look at um, uh, army situation reports, intelligence reports, uh, you know, sort of contemporary accounts of what was going on to, to get a sense of it. All right. So you're listening to our conversation with Nisid Hajari, who is at Nisid, N-I-S-I-D-H-A-J-A-R-I on Twitter. And uh, Saja is, of course, Saja HQ, at Saja HQ uh, on, on Twitter. If you have a question or comment, uh, please uh, join us. Uh, uh, we are going to open up the lines to allow questions in a, uh, in a couple of minutes. But uh, in the meantime, I'm going to ask Nisid to read a couple of pages from his book that can help us kind of understand uh, the writing style uh, of the book itself. So, uh, Nisid, you'll do that. And I'll, I'll say to our audience, if you have a question for Nisid, please uh, dial in to our number, 347-324-5991, 347-324-5991, and hit one on your dial pad and I will come to you, and you can ask a question directly, or you can uh, you can email me a question three at three dot net s r e e at s r e e dot net, or uh, at saja hq, and we'll ask you the, we'll ask the question if you don't want to be on the air with Nisid. Uh, Nisid, as I said, is uh, calling in from Singapore. It's very early in the morning for him, so he's doing pretty well for someone who is. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, been roused out of uh, in the early hours to uh, help us out. Thanks, Nisid. Sure, thank you. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd read a, a little passage from the moment in August 1947 um, when the riots first spiraled out of control. Um, that you know, it's important to remember that there have been riots taking place all summer long ever since the British had announced. Uh, that that partition would take place, uh, which they did in early June. Um, And and in fact, the independence ceremonies had taken place on August 15th, which was a a Friday, Uh, but they had not released the maps showing exactly where the new border would go uh, until the Monday uh, afterwards. And so uh, this passage starts on, on that Monday. Sounds like a loose rail there, murmured D.G. Harrington Hawes. On August 18th, the Briton was crammed into a train engine with the driver and a Hindu soldier as they crossed a canal bridge in the Ferozpur district. They had left the other cars of the Calcutta Lahore Mail behind at the previous station while they tried to discover why no signals were coming from the posts ahead. It turned out that someone had removed two joints from the rails on the bridge. A pickaxe lay nearby. In this part of Ferozpur, the countryside was mostly flat and open, 
but at intervals, great clumps of a coarse reed-like grass grew as much as 10 feet high. Harrington Hawes saw three Sikhs dodging through the grass about 200 yards away. He fired his revolver once in their direction. Returning to the rest of the train, the men decided to reattach the passenger cars and proceed before the line was sabotaged further. Although they didn't realize it at the time, most of the Hindu and Sikh passengers had mysteriously disembarked. When the train reached the canal bridge again, the wooden ties were charred, the Sikhs had tried to set the bridge on fire, and an entire rail had been removed. The three men were able to reattach the rail, and the train hurtled forward. But a mile before the next station, the driver suddenly slammed on the brakes and... Sorry... Slammed on the brakes and shouted, My God, the track's gone. Harrington Hawes remembered thinking, Now we're for it. And with squealing brakes, escaping steam, and a roaring and a crashing, the heavy locomotive plunged off the track, dragging the tender and the first three coaches after it. At the spot where they had derailed, the grass grew high and close to the tracks. Harrington Hawes could see the outlines of a large body of Sikhs hiding there, and more rushing to join them. It was dusk. Knowing that the train carried a small escort, the fighters seemed content to wait for nightfall before attacking. Soon there were hundreds of them. From the reeds came a chilling, triumphant cry, Wa Guruji Kifate, victory to the Guru. Apologize for my pronunciation. <laughs> a day earlier, All India Radio had broadcast the detail of Radcliffe's boundary award. In that morning's papers, maps showed Punjabis precisely how their province would be sliced up. The details of the border should not have come as a great surprise, other than the transfer of parts of the Gurdaspur and Ferozpur districts to India. But Sikhs now had to abandon any hope of a more generous allotment from the Boundary Commission or a last-minute intervention by the Viceroy. It was official. Jinnah's Pakistan had split their community in two. That year, the end of Ramadan and the holiest day in the Muslim calendar, Eid, fell on August 18th. For Muslims living in the eastern Punjab, that was also the day when, quote, the whole countryside seemed to have gone up as if on a prearranged signal, as Harrington Hawes later wrote. Not just in Ferozpur, but in the districts of Hoshiarpur, Gurdaspur, and Jalandhar, all in the now Indian half of the Punjab, large, well-armed squads swept down on Muslim villages and swarmed into Muslim neighborhoods and cities to begin methodically massacring their inhabitants. The Sikhs were merciless and single-minded. Some cried Rol Pindi as they struck to invoke the march slaughter. This was revenge. That last bit um, I should have mentioned, uh, there had been riots uh, in the Royal Pindi district and around there in March of 1947. There were, there were anti-Sikh riots conducted by Muslim mobs. Um, and from that moment on, that's when the Sikhs really started to organize uh, their death squads um, uh, for revenge, as they were very open about saying. Um, and they were the ones, they weren't solely responsible, but they were they were they seemed to have been the ones that... Um, Sparked the initial riots in, in August. Wow, just listening to you read it just gives you a sense of uh, the tragedy and the scale of this tragedy, even though you were focused on such a specific, uh, just a single day and how things went kind of totally wrong from there onwards. Uh, let's, uh, I know we have a caller with a question, so we're going to go and, uh, and ask uh, and get the caller's question, and then we're going to come back and uh, talk to you some more. Uh, just stand by, Nisid. Let's here. Uh, 203 area code, you're on the air with Nisid Ajari on Saja's Blog Talk Radio. Hi, uh, this is... Uh, hello? Can you hear me? Hi. Yes. Uh, this is uh, John Laxmi. I, I was struck by a comment uh, you made just a few minutes ago about uh, the fact that uh, neither Nehru or uh, Gandhi were organizing any of this. This happened more or less spontaneously. Uh, they, they were not organizing the violence. And I also heard, I think, in your NPR interview also about how uh, some of the violence were just totally senseless people um, inflicting not necessarily Hindu versus Muslims. And uh, that leads to a question um, that uh, you might be able to comment on at least. Uh, a lot of people have been blaming Modi for the current Prime Minister Modi for what happened in Gojra in 2002. And I think from your description of your professional career, you probably were there at that time in, in India. And, and so things like things happened then spontaneously, senseless violence. And again, uh, things seem to happen in Gujarat in uh, 2002, the Gujarat riots. Uh, can you draw any parallels between the two? 
That's a good question. Um, I was uh, I was not in India. I was I was um, working in New York for for Newsweek um, during the 2000s. Um, so I did not you know investigate this particular um, incident. But um, you know what I can say is that the what happened in 1947 should be a, a caution to all politicians uh, in the subcontinent that um, it's, you know, you're, you are not guiltless just because you didn't uh, order, uh, you know, squats to go out and, and, and kill, you know, members of the opposite community that if you um, allow a certain kind of rhetoric to take place, if you, um, look away when underlings are, are, um, uh, you know, organizing violence. Um, if you encourage, uh, you know, the kind of sectarian rhetoric that divides communities, you know, for political gain, um, uh, you're playing with fire, uh, that, you know, this, this is very difficult to control, uh, after it started. Um, and it's it's early on that something can be done about it, um, uh, and not, not afterwards. And I think you know leaders have to be held responsible um, for for you know the actions of their underlings. Um, you know Nehru, um, there were there were riots in Bihar um, after those Calcutta riots that I mentioned. Um, there were you know Hindus killing Muslims, and they and they killed about. You know, an estimated seven thousand Muslims, and uh, Nehru flew there and 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 you know uh, flew around the province, tried to stop these riots almost single-handedly. Um, you know, was very valiant about it. Uh, but what he ignored was the fact that the Congress government in that particular province had held rallies, um, you know, against the the League and against Jinnah. And you know, again, they could say that they were they were just uh, holding rallies to, to promote a united India. But of course, in the crowds, um, the message was taken that the Muslims were were responsible for killing Hindus in Calcutta, and, and that there needed to be revenge. And that's how uh, these other riots started. That you know, so um, you know, it's really just not uh, something that politicians in you know now or then uh, should be playing with. It's it's far too dangerous. Can I follow up with the Leslie's question? Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, have you seen this movie called Bajrangi Bhaijan? Now that's uh, uh, somewhat controversial. Some people have said it's totally unrealistic to uh, imagine any kind of uh, detente between the two countries. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, so I, haven't, I have to admit I have not seen the movie. I've only read about it. Um, uh, so I can't speak to the movie specifically. Uh, but but yes, whether there is there is a possibility of detente between the two countries. Um, I, I do think there is. And in fact, I was, I was on a, a panel in, in India recently with, um, with a, a, a leading journalist there, Shikhar Gupta, who made the point that, you know, there has been detente uh, since 1999, which is the last time the two countries uh, really fought one another in, in Kashmir. Um, that, you know, yes, there are cross-border shelling and there's, you know, there's obviously the terrible, uh, you know, Mumbai attacks and so on. Um, but uh, the two countries, is since they you know show that they each have nuclear arsenals, I think um, have started to realize that an outright conflict between them is is pretty much unthinkable. Um, you know, you you there's no way in which uh, let's say a retaliatory Indian strike because of a terrorist attack, um, there's no way to guarantee that wouldn't escalate uh, into a full-scale war and possibly a nuclear confrontation. And um, I think both sides sort of realize that that's the case and that it's not um, uh, worth it. Uh, now, what they need to do is move beyond the sort of cold piece to, to something warmer, um, and that's going to take uh, a lot of effort. It's going to take opening up trade and, and, and borders to, you know, people-to-people uh, -people exchanges and so on. Um, and they, they don't, not enough attention is paid to that sort of uh, thing that, uh, you know, hopefully that will start to change. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Oh, sorry about that sound. Um, thanks, John, for uh, your call. And um, for people who didn't hear the title of that movie, it's called Bajrangi Bhaijan. And I just did a Google search, uh, miss it, and it's playing in three theaters near me here in New York. So it shows you how much the world has changed, doesn't it? 
It does, yeah. And you, you can also, I'm sure, find it in Singapore. Uh, it's the it's one of the biggest movies of all time in in India, and uh, has that element about India and Pakistan as as you as you um, uh, were discussing. So in, we have about 15 minutes left. Uh, let me ask you a, a, about the books that the books and the kind of history of research that you did for for this. Um, uh, how did you get the time to do this? You got a book contract, and then you said you went to live in India. So talk about all of that. And um, the the book that I had read about partition that I had recommended to lots of folks to kind of understand partition was a book called Freedom at Midnight, which is out of print and was written by Dominique Lapierre and Larry Collins. And if yours is kind of has that journalistic uh, take on history, theirs had a novelistic take on history. Uh, so maybe start there. Tell us about that book and uh, what you thought of it after having read it after so many years. Uh, does it still hold up in any way? Uh, obviously, it's no longer in print, and your book is very different from that. Hmm. It, I mean, it certainly holds up um, in a novelistic way. It's an it's an amazing read, um, and they did an incredible uh, reporting job because they were, uh, you know, this was written in the early 70s, and um, a lot of the players involved in Partition were still alive. And they and they you know interviewed hundreds and hundreds of them to um, build up this narrative, um, but the, the the downside of it is that it's that it's really more of a novel um, than a than a history that you know a lot of uh, their account is based on the the memories of uh, Lord Mountbatten, the last viceroy of India, um, who was you know a notorious fabulist. You know he's sort of, you can it's sort of interesting you can see in Mountbatten's papers um, at Southampton University. In, in the UK, um, you can you can read him describe the exact same situation in 1947, and then later in the 50s, then later in the 70s, and with each retelling, um, his role becomes more central. And he, be, you know, it's always, you know, there's some crisis, and Mountbatten comes and saves the day. And um, you know, if you cross-check that against other uh, accounts of the same incident, you realize that that. Um, uh, some of it is just flat out not not true. You know, there there are myths that have grown up, like you know this idea that he he made up the date of August fifteenth on the spur of the moment at a press conference, just um, that wasn't true. Um, you know, various other things. Uh, so it's a great read, but um, but its accuracy is definitely uh, uh, in question. Um, and I had, and but it is, you know, it, it is the, the the best known popular history of this period. There was another one more recently called Indian Summer by Alex von Tunzelman, uh, that is a great book that that concentrates on the uh, suspected relationship between Nehru and, and Edwina Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten's wife. Um, but most of the other books uh, are. are uh, academic books, um, or they're um, only printed in, in the subcontinent, so you know, not not readily accessible to a wider audience. Um, when I started on this one, I had uh, just finished up a, a decade at Newsweek, and it was changing ownership, and and um, I uh, I had gotten this contract and, and decided that I wanted to work on the book full time. Um, so it, you know, I left the magazine. My wife and I sold our apartment in Brooklyn, and we uh, basically lived out of suitcases for the next two years while I worked on the book. We spent a few months in Delhi researching, um, and then we spent about a year in London uh, because uh, you know the British records were were uh, very extensive and very well organized. The same records you'd find in India, you would find in, in the UK, just just um, a little better organized, and, and so you're able to get through more material uh, faster there. Um, and uh, it was just a, a, a process of going through the archives day after day after day. Uh, you know, these old telegrams, you know, some of them signed by Churchill and Nehru. And, um, uh, but, you know, you go through these folders, you don't really know what you're going to find, um, you know, and you're looking for not just what happened, but the kind of um, details and color and anecdotes that would bring the... Uh, bring the situation to life. Um, and sometimes you would find that in the official papers. Um, a lot of times, um, 
you would have to go to sort of smaller archives and find the personal papers of, say, you know, British generals who were in India at the time, um, you know, uh, American journalists who were passing through, um, you know, people who were observers uh, but weren't necessarily the main characters because um, obviously the the papers of the main characters had been poured over by researchers previously. So um, trying to find something new was, was hard. Um, and then we came back to the U.S., where, where I spent about a year writing a draft of the of the book. Uh, and in fact, one of the most useful archives I found were the U.S. State Department archives down in in Maryland, um, because uh, very few people look at them, and the Americans weren't directly involved in partition. But you know, at this time, 1947, it was very clear that they were the dominant post-war power, and all the parties, Nehru and, and Jinnah both, um, were very eager to uh, have the Americans on their side. And so they would uh, you know, go to parties at the U.S. Embassy. They would uh, debrief uh, the American diplomats there. And the Americans, because they didn't really have a dog in the fight, um, actually you know, wrote back to Washington very clear um, very even-handed cables uh, that that uh, you know weren't biased by you know kind of the, the centuries of history that the British had, for instance, um, and so they were they were uh, both interesting political insights and great um, anecdotes um, that uh, that you found there that you, that you wouldn't have found elsewhere. Um, you know, one of which, for instance, um, there, there's a great controversy over how Mountbatten sped up the departure of the British uh, to August, leaving them only about two and a half months to to get ready. Um, And uh, a lot of people still suspect that this was done on purpose in order to weaken India and Pakistan. Uh, And in fact, um, the British Prime Minister told the American ambassador on the day this decision was made that uh, they were only going to give power to India in August because India had a government and had a it was, you know, was ready to take power, um, but that they would still control Pakistan for several more months, possibly another year, until its government got set up. Um, you know, of course, nobody had asked the Pakistanis about this, and it, and the the plan fell apart very quickly. But it just shows uh, how sort of poorly thought through some of these decisions were at the time. What is your sense of how things could have been different? You know, we talked a little bit about the what ifs. What are things that could have changed the narrative? Uh, we we read about uh, kind of the health of Jinnah, for example. Is that something that you looked into, and how does that figure into the story? Yeah, no, that's um, it's interesting. There's a story, and it comes from Freedom at Midnight, that supposedly Jinnah's doctor knew, um, you know, in in early '47 that he had tuberculosis and was about to die and that if and if Mountbatten had known this and had delayed that this partition would never have happened. Um but I think it's been pretty conclusively proven that that, that wasn't true. That, you know, Jenna had been a sick man for a long time. Um, you know, every year in the in the forties he would sort of disappear for a month uh to some hill station to recuperate. He was a two pack a day smoker, uh, extremely thin. Um you know, he was elderly. I mean, you know, people knew he wasn't doing well, uh, but there's no evidence that his um, uh, tuberculosis was, uh, you know, life-threatening uh, until the summer of 1948 um, when he went off to uh, recuperate in Baluchistan and never never really came back. Um, so I don't think that a delay necessarily would have made a, made a difference. Um, I think what, you know, what would have made a difference would have been, you know, first of all, if uh, all sides would have committed to this um, compromise in 46, what was called the cabinet mission plan. If, if Nehru had not made these public comments um, uh, at his press conference uh, that, that sort of blew up the deal. Um, I think that could have changed things. Um, if, the leaders uh, on both sides uh, had listened to the governor of the Punjab, who was a British official, uh, but who knew the Punjab very well. And he was the one saying, you know, for months ahead of of partition, uh, that all these groups were were arming and they were being funded by the political parties, um, uh, you know, within the Punjab. And what he wanted 
he wanted more troops, and he wanted uh, the leaders in Delhi to send the word down to their to their um, you know uh, uh, underlings in the Punjab uh, to cut it out to to, to stop uh, organizing these groups to stop um, uh, sponsoring uh, arson attacks and so on. Um, you know, if that could have been done before August of '47, uh, I think the violence would not have been so bad. Um, and then finally, if uh, leaders in Delhi had listened to the Sikhs, you know, after these riots in March of '47, the Sikh community was traumatized, and they really had sincere uh, and legitimate fears about what would happen to them as a tiny minority within if if they ended up in Pakistan, and the border that everyone was talking about. Uh, drawing would have run right through the middle of the Punjab and would have split their community in half. And the Sikhs were trying to argue that the border should have been drawn, you know, in a different way to try and include most of their their community within India. Um, and that was never going to happen. And it it should have been made clear to them much earlier on that it was never going to happen, uh, and that you know they needed to figure out what what it was they were going to do, what they were going to tell their their followers um, about this um, ahead of time. Um, but it didn't happen partly because um, uh, you know Jinnah didn't think it was his problem; he was fairly callous about this, and Nehru um, wanted to uh, sort of. The, the, the Sikh threat was sort of useful to him because he was hoping that India would get more territory in the in the boundary award uh, because maybe the British would think this would be a way to prevent violence. Um, so he also didn't, uh, you know, sort of sit down with the Sikh leaders and explain, uh, you know, what was going to happen. Um, and I think both of them, Nehru and Jinnah, neither of them knew the Punjab that well, and I don't think they took the Sikh threats all that seriously. So uh, if that had been different, I think... Um, the violence would not have been quite so quite so widespread, and maybe then the troops that they had in place would have been sufficient to um, to quell them uh, early on. So we have only a few minutes left, so we're going to make this the lightning round, and we're going to uh, I'm going to uh, get several questions into you. Uh, one of one of them is um, uh, kind of thinking about how hard it is today to deal with drawing. Uh, separating out people based on drawing things on a map. But in 1947, this is before Google Maps and other kind of technology tools, how did they manage to do what they did when, in fact, you're, you're drawing things in the middle of villages and sitting in, you know, away from these places? How did they do that? And, um, you know, if you've been uh, to the Waga border, I, I, I'm, I'm talking to the audience, anybody who can go either the what's called the the border of India and Pakistan in a town called in, in the area called Waga W A G A H. You can go from India, and I presume I've never been from Pakistan, but you can go from the Pakistan side. You can see that there's a line in the in these fields, and that's Pakistan, and this is India. It's a very um, upsetting place to stand and watch. I took one of my one of my students, a group of students, came with me, and we saw had a student from Mexico who was just standing there and just thinking about borders in America and Mexico as well. It was a very moving and and sad kind of place. No, it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, the, the one thing is the British, uh, you know, were were. Um, Great cartographers, right? So they um, and and they had you know the system of uh, district officials. So they knew down to the village level, um, generally speaking, you know who lived where, which communities. Uh, so the the decision about where the line would go was supposed to be based on population. So so um, districts uh, that had a Hindu or a non-Muslim majority would go to India, and and those that had a Muslim majority would go to go to Pakistan. Um, and the fact was that that was pretty clear because they had these census data, um, you know, they had these maps. And in fact, a year before independence, more than a year before, uh, the previous viceroy had had his officials draw up a, a draft line to see what it would look like um, if you drew a line uh, based on population. 
And that was the line that almost exactly became the final border a year later. It wasn't it should not have been a huge surprise because everyone, you know, the populations were known. Um, you know, the, the various communities would, uh, sat before this boundary commission and argued, um, you know, they tried to put forward different figures or they made different arguments like, you know, okay, this district might be Muslim majority, but it has a very important Sikh shrine in it, so therefore it should go to India. Um, you know, there are various things like that, and there, and there were, you know, some tweaks that were made, including one sort of last-minute tweak uh, after pressure from from Nehru um, uh, to sort of keep an important canal headworks, uh, which which fed various uh, princely kingdoms in India, uh, to keep that on the Indian side. You know, there there are little tweaks like that, but um, what, what the real problem wasn't that it's you know artificially divided villages. It was that it um, split the Sikh community in half and left more than a million of them. Uh, on the Pakistan side of the border, and that was the um, that was the signal. That was that was the sort of what the Sikhs had said they would not tolerate. Um, and the the fact is that there was no physical way to draw the border in a way that would, would have been fair to both sides and would have met the Sikh demands. Um, and Mountbatten himself admitted that uh, and and had no answer. He just said, "That's up to you to to figure out. You have to come to some sort of political compromise." But it wasn't um, it wasn't the map maker's fault. And of course, we uh, you know there's a whole other conversation to be had, and maybe in a future date about the eastern side of India. Without the Sikhs, there was you know the creation of what became East Pakistan, and then eventually Bangladesh. That without the Sikh issue there, we saw tremendous violence, and and uh, and of course yet another country being born from this. Uh, many years later, so that's something we'll have to talk about another time. Uh, a word about Mountbatten, since you you brought him up, and uh, it's easy now, I guess, to look back and see uh, the role that he played and then didn't play. Some of it is exaggerated, but it, he did meet the most kind of cruel end, uh, and something that's hard to think about now. That you started this conversation by talking about kind of Northern Ireland and and those changes, but to think that a relative of the queen, first cousin, I believe, right, could be killed by the IRA, and today that relationship has been repaired is kind of unfathomable to my mind. And uh, my kids were watching a CNN documentary about that, about the 70s, and we concluded that maybe there's hope with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all of that, that maybe things can get better if those if that relationship could be repaired. Is that too rosy a... Uh, no, a no. no, I don't. I don't think so at all. I mean, I think if you, you know, um, speak to you know ordinary Indians and Pakistanis, um, you know, majorities are in favor of closer ties. I mean, majorities are also suspicious of each other's uh, government and their intentions. But um, in terms of, of you know people to people ties. Uh, people are looking for more trade. They're looking for more exchanges. Um, they, they want closer uh, relations, uh, and it makes sense. I mean, there, there are all sorts of uh, strong economic reasons why these two countries should be more integrated. Um, and uh, you know, as I said, the nuclear weapons uh, almost um, guarantee that there can't be a, another major conflict. So I think uh, the chances of the relationship improving are are, are good. You know, the, the groundwork is there. Um, but it's going to take strong leadership, and um, it's going to take leadership that is willing to ignore the kind of rabid nationalist media um, that that you know that we have here in the, the U.S. as well. It's not it's not just India and Pakistan, but um, you know, as somebody pointed out, you know, India and Pakistan are at war every day uh, on cable TV. But if you if you go to the border, if you go to you know ask ordinary people, um, that's not the case, and that's I think that's what political leaders have to keep in mind. So you're, that's a nice optimistic note on which we will end. The book is called Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition by Nisid Hajari, at Nisid, H-A-J-A-R-I on Twitter. And you've been listening to my conversation with him. Thank you for calling in all the way from Singapore. His book is available all over the world and uh, on Amazon and other uh, bookstores and in South Asia itself. And uh, how has it been received there, um, Nisid? Oh, it's been great. I just I just got back from a, a week in, in Delhi and Mumbai, um, and it was really heartening because uh, you know you 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 
your fear, obviously, is that this is a story that uh, people there have grown up with, and, and many of them, uh, you know, think they already know, and you know, wonder why there's another book about it. Um, but uh, lots of very, very smart people I respect greatly, um, uh, you know, were, were telling me that there were things in the book that they that they hadn't known, and that that had surprised them, and that um, they found refreshing. So um, that was really uh, great to hear. So. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, and thank you for all your uh, help and support of Saja all these years. Uh, you've been you've been uh, 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 you've spoken at multiple events. You've uh, guided and uh, helped lots of uh, young kids who went into journalism. So we appreciate all of that. And uh, please keep in touch. And good luck with the book and uh, and your work at Bloomberg. Thank you so much, Ray. It was great to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to a Saja webcast. You can catch all our activities at saja.org and sajaforum.org. Our email is saja at columbia.edu. We'll leave you with the musical stylings of Cooper Madison of coopermadison.com. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.